blankets, books on tape, and a dog on drugs. Just for the trip, I swear. All other stuff would come in the moving van. For better or worse, we would soon be living on a farm. For 20 years, Stephen had owned a piece of land in the southern Appalachians with a farmhouse, barn, orchards, and fields, and a tax zoning known as farm use. He was living there when I met him, teaching college and fixing up his old house one salvaged window at a time. I'd come as a visiting writer, recently divorced, with something of a fixer-upper life. We proceeded to wreck our agendas in the predictable fashion by falling in love. My young daughter and I were attached to our community in Tucson. Stephen was just as attached to his own green pastures and the birdsong chorus of deciduous eastern woodlands. My father-in-law-to-be, upon hearing the exciting news about us, asked Stephen, "'Couldn't you find one closer?' "'Apparently not.' We held on to the farm by renting the farmhouse to another family and maintained marital happiness by migrating like birds. For the school year, we lived in Tucson, but every summer headed back to our rich foraging grounds, the farm. For three months a year, we lived in a tiny, extremely crooked log cabin in the woods behind the farmhouse, listening to wood thrushes, growing our own food. The girls for another child came along shortly, loved playing in the creek, catching turtles, experiencing real mud. I liked working the land and increasingly came to think of this place as my home too. When all of us were ready, we decided we'd go there for keeps. We had many conventional reasons for relocation, including extended family, my Kingsolver ancestors came from that county in Virginia. I'd grown up only a few hours away, over the Kentucky line. Returning now would allow my kids more than just a hit-and-run holiday acquaintance with grandparents and cousins. In my adult life, I'd hardly shared a phone book with anyone else using my last name. Now I could spend Memorial Day decorating my ancestors' graves with peonies from my backyard. Tucson had opened my eyes to the world and given me a writing career, legions of friends, and a taste for the sensory extravagance of red-hot chilies and five-alarm sunsets. But after 25 years in the desert, I'd been called home. There is another reason the move felt right to us and it's the purview of this book. We wanted to live in a place that could feed us, where rain falls, crops grow, and drinking water bubbles right up out of the ground. This might seem an abstract reason for leaving beloved friends and one of the most idyllic destination cities in the United States, but it was real to us. As it closes in on the million souls mark, Tucson's charms have made it one of this country's fastest-growing cities. It keeps its people serviced across the wide, wide spectrum of daily human wants, with its banks, shops, symphonies, colleges, art galleries, city parks, and more golf courses than you can shake a stick at. By all accounts, it's a bountiful source of everything on the human need checklist— save for just the one thing, the stuff we put in our mouths every few hours to keep us alive. 
Like many other modern U.S. cities, it might as well be a space station where human sustenance is concerned. Virtually every unit of food consumed there moves into town in a refrigerated module from somewhere far away. Every ounce of the city's drinking, washing, and goldfish bowl filling water is pumped from a non renewable source, a fossil aquifer that is dropping so fast, sometimes the ground crumbles. In a more recent development, some city water now arrives via a 300 mile long open canal across the desert from the Colorado River, which, owing to our thirsts, Is a river that no longer reaches the ocean but peters out in a sand flat near the Mexican border. If it crosses your mind that water running through hundreds of miles of open ditch in a desert will evaporate and end up full of concentrated.